Well, good morning. Happy New Year. As, uh, as Dave read, we'll be in Romans 1, uh, verses uh, 1 through 7 this morning. So as you are turning there uh, in your Bible, I want to just uh, tell you a, a brief little story. Uh, so some of you know I have uh, a bit of an affinity uh, for Japanese culture. Not like Hello Kitty and anime and that kind of stuff, but uh, uh, the, the architecture, the history, uh, the tradition, the food, uh, sushi and ramen and those kinds of things in uh, 2010... Uh, a couple of members of my family uh, and I got to travel over there uh, for a particular trip that uh, we got to see the orphanage from which my dad was adopted as a, uh, as a child. He's half Japanese, uh, so I'm a quarter Japanese. And then in 2012, I uh, got to go over there a second time. And this time wasn't with family. This was with a couple of friends. And, uh, and these uh, friends and I went over there in order to just kind of uh, see the landscape of uh, Japan and uh, from kind of a spiritual standpoint. Uh, and try to assess what kind of uh, ministry opportunities there might be over there. Interestingly enough, uh, both of these uh, guys that I was on the trip with ended up uprooting their lives and moving over there as, uh, as full-time uh, uh, missionaries. One of those guys in particular is a really, really good uh, friend of mine. So I'm about to make fun of him, with the caveat, though, that he is a really good friend of mine. Uh, and, uh, and so this particular friend and I have this running debate uh, and the debate is, which one of us, he or I, which one is more Japanese? Uh, and, uh, and so here are some of the facts. Now, you need to understand, this guy is white. And I don't mean Caucasian. I mean like Elmer's glue or milk. If you ever seen the movie Powder, you know what I'm talking about. This guy is like really white. There's a saying in Japan, uh, a famous uh, kind of a proverb that says that the, uh, the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. In which case, my buddy is getting hammered down. Because in a crowd of 10,000 people, you're spotting him, all right? It's like the world's easiest Where's Waldo game. And, uh, and so this is my buddy. Uh, he, uh, no matter how un-Japanese I might look, he looks more so. So anyway, which one of us is more Japanese? This is uh, the ongoing debate that we have had for years uh, and years. Is in my corner is the fact that I'm actually a quarter Japanese. In his corner is the fact that uh, he lives in Japan. He speaks Japanese, although whenever we first began to have this debate, none of those conditions were actually true. He was still here, didn't really, really speak uh, Japanese, but he did have this in his corner. This was his one sort of ace uh, up his sleeve uh, that he would play, and that is the fact that his wife is Japanese. She was born in Japan. Uh, her heritage is Japanese, and so they met in college. They uh, got married, and so that's it. And so he says... In light of the fact that we are one flesh, that makes me at least 50% Japanese. <laughs> and I said, I will grant you that if you will also grant that that also makes you 50% woman and makes your wife 50% man, <laughs> just to be logically consistent. And uh, he wisely refused uh, to do that, and so we remain at a stalemate. Uh, but this buddy, uh, again, really good friend of mine, uh, he, whenever he first met uh, his uh, now wife, uh, they uh, started to date, and, uh, and so eventually they got to a point where they began to really get serious uh, and start thinking about marriage, uh, but uh, my buddy had not yet met uh, his uh, future in-laws. He had not met uh, his girlfriend's parents, uh, and so there was a break in, uh, in college, and uh, she went back to Tokyo, and, uh, and then uh, a couple of days uh, or maybe a week or so later, he followed behind her. And uh, it was this first opportunity to actually meet her family. Now, that is a very, very, very long flight to do, especially when you're all alone 
and you're going to be meeting who you hope to be your future uh, in-laws. And, uh, and so the whole time, he is just nervous. Uh, he's sweating. He's rocking back and forth. And over and over and over, he's practicing his opening line that he's going to say whenever he finally meets his future father-in-law. He was planning on coming and meeting uh, at the airport, and so that would be actually the first person that he meets there in Japan would be his girlfriend's uh, father. Uh, And so the entire flight, he is just practicing over and over and over uh, a phrase that means nice to meet you. Uh, The phrase is hajimemashite. And so the entire time, he is rocking back and forth in his chair, sweating and saying hajimemashite, 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 which means Nice to meet you. A great sort of a cultural way to say uh, hello, uh, very polite. And, uh, and so finally lands there at Narita, uh, deboards, goes to baggage claim, gets his bags, walks out, sees the, uh, uh, his girlfriend's father, walks up to him and says, Doetashimashite, which doesn't mean the same thing as Hajimemashite. It doesn't mean nice to meet you. It means you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome for what? I don't know. I also don't know all the intricacies of Japanese culture, but I'm pretty sure in no culture is that the best way to meet your future father-in-law. There are probably much worse ways, but there are also much better. As we all know, opening lines and, uh, and first impressions are really important. I'm really excited for us as we embark on this new season in the life of Parkway, as we embark on a new book study together, as we begin to work through uh, the book of Romans, which is kind of like the height, the apex uh, in a lot of ways of biblical theology. Uh, this quote by Martin Luther, I think, summarizes my own sentiments uh, quite nicely, uh, where he says this, again, this is by Martin Luther, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So what we're going to embark upon over the next 18 or so months is going to be this sort of gargantuan mammoth task. And it can be easy for us to kind of want to skip over the opening, kind of like the way that you might skip over an Apple agreement. You just click that you've read it, or the way that you might skip certain pieces of mail in order to open the kind of mail that you really like. Maybe when you heard that we're going to be walking through Romans, you got really, really excited. We're going to be doing chapter 3. We're going to be doing chapter 6. We're going to be doing chapter 8 or chapter 9 or whatever it is for you that is just kind of like the apex uh, of uh, your theology, and you got really excited. I wonder, though, how many of us were really excited about this week? Like, how many of us really, really came this morning with an expectation that this is not just a, we're going to lay the groundwork for something that we're going to do in the future, but how many of us really came with expectation and hope that the Lord would actually speak to us through this, this epistolary greeting, this little salutation uh, that Paul is going to give? But if we truly believe 2 Timothy chapter 3, if we really believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, if we really believe that all Scripture is authoritative and sufficient, that that means that there are things in the text today that God desires and even demands that we know of Him. And so I don't want us to skip ahead. I don't want us to be thinking about chapter 12 or chapter 13 or chapter 8 or whatever it might be. I want us to sit in what we're actually going to see today. We'll get there eventually, but for today... We have chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in. 
just want to ask you first just to pray for yourself. Ask that the Lord would give you a heart that's undivided and undistracted this morning. Give you. Maybe you didn't have that expectation. Maybe this is just, just you felt uh, it was kind of a compulsory sort of thing. We're just doing this just so we can move on to other things. And so ask the, the Spirit to give you expectation and hope and anticipation. And then pray for those around you, for your husband or wife, for your kids, for your parents, for your friends, for strangers sitting next to you, that the Lord would do the same for them. We recognize that God isn't just meeting with us individually, He's meeting with us corporately, so pray for those around us. And then lastly, would you pray for me, that the Lord would give me boldness and confidence to be able to proclaim His Word with faithfulness. So, Father, we want to come before you this morning with expectation and hope that you would meet with us. And so we ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in this text, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, and you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and your word. And we pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. And we see that because you've given us this word this morning concerning your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So let's look at Romans 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Before we dive into the, uh, the text in particular, I want to just kind of tackle a little bit of background information that will be important. We won't spend a whole lot of time on this. Some of these things will come up later in the letter, uh, but just a few different things uh, four facts, if you will, that will kind of wet your whistle, whatever that phrase means, uh, that will kind of wet your whistle for the, uh, the coming weeks uh, as we uh, dive into this. And so first, uh, author. Uh, well, according to uh, this uh, text right here, it says the letter was written by the Apostle uh, Paul. Uh, this is one of those letters that even in skeptical, uh, kind of scholarly realms, there has uh, never been really any serious uh, debate. There are some epistles that uh, skeptics might argue over uh, whether or not they're actually authentically Pauline. This is one of those that's in kind of a, uh, a little sort of internal circle where there's really been no dispute throughout church history. So we'll kind of move on uh, from that. The second one is the audience. According to verse 7, we'll get to in a little bit, it was written specifically uh, to the church in uh, Rome. But like all of Paul's epistles, there is an expectation that they be passed around so there's a sense in which it's not just written to the church in Rome, but it's written to the church universal, which includes us here uh, this morning. Third thing, uh, the date. Uh, the book was written sometime between 55 and 58 A.D. Uh, scholars are able to kind of nail it down based on some information that we see in chapter 15. When we get there, we'll walk through some of that. Correlate that information in chapter 15 with what we see in the book of Acts and some of Paul's missionary journeys uh, and we kind of arrive at this three-year window between, or I guess more of a four-year window between 55 and 58 uh, A.D. And then lastly uh, is the theme. And so here's the theme of the book that we'll be talking about. Romans is about the revelation of the righteousness of God and the gospel. Romans is about the revelation of the righteousness of God and the gospel. In, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll spend an entire week expositing Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, uh, which says this and kind of serves as a summary of the book. If you're kind of looking uh, for a short, succinct summary of the book, 
of Romans. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17 would serve uh, you well in that uh, regard. Uh, and we'll spend, again, an entire week on it in two weeks. But it says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's the, book, uh, the point of the book of Romans, that God is righteous and that man is unrighteous but that God provides his unrighteousness to uh, his righteousness to unrighteous man in the gospel by faith. That's what the book of Romans is about. Chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 3 are about man's unrighteousness. The end of chapter 3 is about how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Chapters 4 through 6 is about how God imputes or credits righteousness uh, to his people in the act of justification. Chapter 7 through 8 is about how God imparts righteousness to his people in the act of sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11 are about how God's righteousness is vindicated. And then uh, the closing chapters, 12 through 16, are about how righteousness is practiced in daily life among God's people. And we'll walk through uh, that. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's look at uh, the text. So this, like all of Paul's letters... A uh, fancy word for Pauline letters or formal letters in uh, the New Testament period uh, are epistles. So they call this a Pauline epistle. It just means a formal uh, letter. Uh, and so like all of Paul's epistles, this relies upon a t- typical epistolary greeting, which includes three elements. Uh, the, uh, the name of the person writing the letter, the name of the person to whom it's being written, uh, or the people to whom it's being written, and some brief greetings. And so you see all three of those common elements, you read any of Paul's uh, epistles and you're going to find those three elements, the name of the person uh, that's writing the letter, the audience that's receiving it, and then some uh, brief uh, greetings. It's also the longest and most theologically rich uh, of all of his greetings. Uh, The reason that most scholars think that he spends so much time in the book of Romans giving sort of a theological foundation is because this is the only uh, letter to a church that Paul or some of his direct associates did not personally uh, plant. In fact, Paul had never actually uh, met any of these people. He had never visited them at this point. So whenever he's writing to the church uh, at Ephesus, Paul had actually ministered to Ephesus for a long time. He had already laid a foundation that he has not had an opportunity to do in Rome. And so he writes this much longer introduction for that particular uh, purpose. And his point, his goal, his desire is eventually to make it to Rome, but not to end. Rome is not an end in and of itself. Paul's desire is always, I don't want to lay a foundation where a foundation has already been laid. Instead, I want to lay this new foundation. And so Paul's goal was to use Rome as a platform from which he might uh, do some ministry beyond Rome into Spain. At this point, uh, the gospel had not made its way into Spain. So that's part of his hope in writing to uh, the church in Rome is to build up capital there so that whenever he actually goes to Rome, the church might be edified and encouraged and then might send him out as a missionary uh, to reach uh, the people in uh, Spain. And so Paul begins by identifying himself, and he says three things about himself. First, he says that he is a servant 
your translation might say bondservant or it might say slave. All of those kind of have a similar connotation. He's a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably already know this, but I don't want to assume everyone is on the same page. Oftentimes in Scripture, you might see Christ Jesus, you might see Jesus Christ. Those kind of things uh, are typically uh, interchangeable. But Christ is not Jesus' first name. It's not his middle name. It's not his last name. It's not a name at all. In fact, it's a title. What does Christ mean? Well, Christ is just a, a transliteration. We're just taking the same sounds, the same uh, 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 letters from Greek and moving them into English. Uh, and so it is just a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, all right, which is uh, similar to a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. What English word do we get from Mashiach? Anybody know? Messiah, all right? So Christ and Messiah mean the exact same thing. What does that actually mean, though? Again, Christ is just taking the word Christos and Englishizing it. Uh, and Messiah is just taking the Hebrew Mashiach and Englishizing it. But what, is those, what do those terms actually mean? Well, both Christ and Messiah means an anointing, one who has been anointed with oil. Speaking of oil, last night I am uh, in bed working on the sermon and uh, I hear um, Casey, who's my wife, uh, in the bathroom, and she's making all of this just racket in there, and there's clinking, uh, and, uh, and then, so I kind of peer over from the edge of the bed into the, and I see that she's kneeling uh, there in, uh, in the bathroom. So I ask, I said, babe, what are you doing? I can't actually see what she's doing. I can just see her feet as she's kneeling, and she says, I'm not making this, she says, I'm making my own perfume, <laughs> and I thought, what? You're making your own perfume? She said, yeah. So I said, I can see this. So I get out of bed. I go and I look in there. She's got all of the, her essential oils out, and she's mixing them uh, together in order to make her own perfume. The end result was something that she said is not my favorite scent. That was her thing. <laughs> but I always, I always say that you never know if you're going to like homemade perfume until you try it. So she gave it a shot. Speaking of oil, though, back to the text, uh, the... Uh, the point of the text is who is anointed with oil. So if Jesus is the Christ, and Christ means anointed, what does this mean? Who is anointed with oil? Well, in the context of the Old Testament, you have a number of, uh, of different offices that are anointed with oil. You have uh, prophets and you have priests. Both of them are anointed with oil. But in particular, the concept is going to revolve around the anointing of a king. That's what it means whenever you read Christ Jesus uh, in essence, uh, it is saying King Jesus. Every time you see Christ Jesus, you should think in your mind, King Jesus. This is a statement about Jesus' authority. This is a statement about who He is as the Messiah, as the King who will rule and reign. And so, that's what He says here first, that I am a servant of the King, King Jesus. The second thing He says, that He is called to be an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent and uh, as Paul uses it here, it designates a commission from Jesus himself. Now this, what you make of Paul as an apostle is going to be essential for how you interpret the book of Romans, for what the book of Romans is going to do in your heart and your soul. And so I want to spend a couple of moments working through that. So let me explain. What do I mean by kind of, in essence, the book of Romans is going to hinge on what you do with Paul's apostleship, because apostleship, as Paul is using the term, implies authority. Paul is commissioned by King Jesus as his authoritative 
representative, which means that as we read this book, there very well might be times that we feel pressed. There very well might be things that we read in this book that we don't like all that much, things that even might offend us, things that we dislike, things that disturb us. We might feel a little uncomfortable whenever Romans talks about sexuality or homosexuality or salvation and judgment or justification by faith or hell or human depravity or marriage or divorce and remarriage or predestination or dozens of other topics that might sting. And you might think to yourself, who gave you the right? Who gave you the right, Jeff? Or who, who gave you the right, Zach or Tim or Carl, whoever's preaching? Or who gave you the right, Paul, to even write these sorts of things? Well, Paul's answer is Christ Jesus himself. King Jesus gave me the right. This is the word of King Jesus, and he has every right in all authority. See, there's only one proper response to biblical authority, and that is joyful, glad submission. Anything less than that on our part is lacking. Anything less than that is deficient. Where we need to seek further understanding, we should do so. And where we need to repent for simply not liking what the Bible says, we need to do so. See, the battle of the church is always a battle over the Word of God. If you wonder, if you wonder why here at Parkway we do theological equipping classes, why do we do theological equipping classes for children, uh, why, do we, uh, why do we do expository preaching, why do we do these sorts of things, it's because of this emphasis biblically on theology, on knowing God by knowing His Word. Think about back in the garden, that serpentine whisper, the very first thing that you see of doubt and sin is the questioning of the Word of God. Did God really say? That same question arises in our heart when we're facing some sort of temptation. And the only way to know the answer is to know what God has really said and to trust it and to treasure it. So he says he's an apostle. He's an authoritative representative of the king. He's a bondservant. He's an apostle. What else? Lastly, Paul says that he is set apart for the gospel. Notice that it says that the gospel of God. Notice that's the way that he represents it, but I want to press pause on that. We'll come back to it in the next uh, section of verses when he begins to expound upon what the gospel is. I want to look at this next phrase where it talks about this gospel was promised beforehand in the Scriptures. In other words, the gospel is just this fulfillment, the fulfillment of Israel's longing and hope and anticipation and expectation what we see in the New Testament is certainly different from what we see in the Old Testament, but it's not antithetical. It's not contradictory in some sense. Instead, Jesus is the substance of which the Old Testament was but a shadow. And the substance is always greater than the shadow, as a person is greater than the portrait or the picture of that person. And I want us to think about something as well, what this fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament means. This isn't just a statement of the gospel. It's not just a statement that tells us something about the gospel. It's also a statement that tells us something about God Himself. This tells us that God keeps His promises. Not one word falls to the ground unfulfilled. My, uh, my first year of college, I had a roommate. His name was Brooks. And he and, I, he and I got along really well, but for some unknown, absurd reason, he decided to transfer out of A&M, worst decision of his life, and, uh, and, uh, and so he transferred out of A&M. So my second year, 
there he was uh, not a student. But uh, my other roommates and I uh, threw this party, and, uh, and so we, divi- uh, we invited Brooks, and uh, we told him, hey, man, you should come up uh, for the weekend and stay with us. And he said, absolutely, I'll do that. And, uh, and so we had given him about a week head, heads up, and, uh, and so the day of the party comes, and uh, uh, he gives me a call, and he says, hey, man, I'm about to jump in the car. He lived about two hours away and uh, said, I'll be there in a couple hours. And I never heard from him again. Literally, to this day, I still have not heard from Brooks. And, uh, and so for years, I wondered what happened to him. I left some messages. I left him an email. He never responded. And I thought, man, did he get abducted by aliens? Did he get into a car accident? I had no idea. Now, since Google has now existed, I've actually Googled him since then, and he's alive and well, but I have no idea why he never showed up. God is not like that. Whenever he says, I'm going to show up, when he says, I'm going to do something, he fulfills his promises. He told Israel that he was coming, and he arrived, though not necessarily as they had expected. And this is good news for us this morning, church. Because it means for us that God is always faithful. He always keeps His promises. Whatever circumstance you're going through, even if it seems as though God is uh, silent, even if it seems as if there is this stillness and that God is not moving, He is always faithful and He keeps every promise. Let's look at verses 3 through 4. That this gospel is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the previous verse we saw that Paul was set apart for the gospel and the gospel was described as the gospel of God. In other words, it's from him and it's about him. The gospel is not first and foremost about you or about me. And what I should do or what you should do or what we should do, the gospel is first and foremost about what God has done and who God is. You ever get an email that kind of just rambles on and on and on and you might be wondering, what's the point? Where are they writing? After three paragraphs, you're thinking, get to the point. There can be a tendency to read Romans and to think that. You know, you're reading the book of Romans. You don't get to any sort of thing that you're to do till Romans chapter 12. That's where the commands, that's where the imperatives start uh, in the book. So up until that point, it's all indicatives. It's all what God has done. Chapters 1 through 11 are all about God, and that is the point. The point of the gospel is not what you and I should do. It's what God has done. This is the good stuff here. The good news comes to us, but it's not about us. It's about God. And speaking of God, notice in this verse the Trinitarian language God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three members, persons of the Trinity are mentioned here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who eternally exists, who eternally consists of three distinct persons. By the way, if you are not sure why uh, uh, an understanding of Trinitarianism is essential for your joy and hope and security, and all of those sorts of things, let me encourage you, go back and listen to the audio uh, from last semester where we spent weeks talking about the importance of Trinitarianism. So we see the gospel is from and about this triune God, but now we see something else about it, and that is that it concerns His Son in particular. So what about His Son do we see from this verse? Well, there's a lot that's jam-packed into this little uh, passage. Messianic expectation 
His crucifixion, His resurrection, His kingdom, His rule and reign, Trinitarianism as we talked about. He begins by mentioning that Jesus is both the Son of David and the Son of God. Now, you might think upon first reading that that's just simply saying that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Son of David, He's human. Son of God, He is God. Now, it's absolutely true that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That absolutely is true. But that is not Paul's point here in this particular text. When he's talking about Jesus as being the Son of David, his emphasis is not on His humanity. When he talks about Jesus as being the Son of God, his emphasis is not on His deity. Let me show you that uh, in uh, the text. So what does it mean that He was descended from David according to the flesh? Typically, when Paul uses the word flesh, does it have a positive or negative connotation? Negative, right? Flesh is something that uh, refers to this sinful disposition of humanity. But here, he doesn't mean it in that sense. Here, he's just talking about Jesus' ancestry. But he relates Jesus' ancestry not to Joseph. If if, if all he wanted to do was just simply say that Jesus is human, he would have actually uh, related it back to uh, Mary or something like that. But instead, he goes to David. Why? Because David is the archetypal king of the Old Testament. And all the prophecies of the Old Testament uh, share about the fact, even on, uh, on uh, Christmas for our services, we talked about the fact that the hope is that from the stump of Jesse, from the root of David, there is going to be this coming king. That's Paul's emphasis here. It's not a statement about Jesus' humanity so much as it is a statement of Jesus as the fulfillment of this longing and hope and expectation that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king who ushers in the kingdom. So though Jesus is fully human, that's not the main point that Paul is stressing here. The main point isn't just that Jesus is human. It's that Jesus is king. And what does it mean that he is declared to be the son of God in power by resurrection? I want to do a little bit of theology here. This is going to be a little bit uh, complex, so I need you to, to, to pay attention for a second. I'm going to tell you a word. It's a big word. Zach actually uh, used it in theological equipping, but the word is ontology. Ontology is a, a study of something's essence or being or nature, all right? And so uh, we might say that I am ontologically, I am ontologically human, right? That is what I am by my essence, by my nature. I'm not uh, a cat. I'm not a cow. I'm not a, a, a lion or a bear or something like that. I worked bear into another sermon. Uh, that what I am ontologically is a uh, human. Now, I am a number of other things, right? I'm a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a husband, but those things aren't ontological realities uh, of my life. Those are things that I am by calling, by role, by responsibility. Does that make sense? The difference between ontology and something that is more accidental or incidental uh, to you. So Jesus has always been ontologically the Son of God. Jesus in His very nature is the Son of God. Absolutely, that is true. But there is a sense what this passage is talking about is not Jesus' ontology. It's talking about Jesus' role and responsibility. Let me uh, explain that uh, a little bit uh, further. So Jesus, ontologically, has always been the Son of God. He didn't become God at some point. He wasn't not God, and then He becomes God. He wasn't adopted into uh, deity. Uh, something like that. Uh, But again, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about Jesus as the Son of God by nature, but rather by His role. He's not talking about Jesus as the Son of God ontologically, but rather Jesus as the Son of God messianically. 
messianically or Christologically. Again, he is by nature always the Son of God. Paul is using this phrase in this passage, Son of God, not to teach about his deity, but to teach about him as the Messiah. Let me show you that throughout the Old Testament, you will see a constant refrain where Israel is referred to as the Son of God. Exodus 4, 22-23, I think we have it up on the board. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Those are just a couple of examples where Israel, as a corporate people, are called the son of God. That's the imagery that Paul is leaning on here in this particular passage where he is talking about Jesus as the son of God. So Israel is called the son of God, and there are also hints in the Old Testament that as Israel was God's son in a unique way, so the Messiah in particular would be God's son in a unique way. Look at Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the, dec- the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that's the imagery that Paul is calling on here. What Paul is saying is that at his resurrection, Jesus is appointed as the fulfillment of all of this rich Old Testament context. All of this rich Old Testament history where Israel is the Son of God, and the Messiah is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Indeed, He is the new Israel. That's a theme that we'll see over and over throughout the book of Romans. Jesus, uh, Israel has 12 tribes. Jesus has 12 apostles. Israel is tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is t- tempted and tested in the wilderness. Israel is daily fed by bread from heaven. Jesus is the true bread come down from heaven. Israel is baptized in the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and baptized into death in a sense. And we could give dozens of other examples of this that theologians call recapitulation. In other words, every single place where Israel is unfaithful, every single place where Israel falls and falters, Jesus fulfills. Jesus is faithful. So Jesus is Israel. He is the true Son of God, not only by nature, but also by being appointed on the basis of the fact that He is the faithful fulfillment of Israel's expectation and hope. So this gospel is concerning Jesus, who is Messiah, not only by birth, but also, according to this text, by resurrection. After all, think about all of the dozens of other kings who were related, who were descended from David. Think about all of the other Uh, people who were descended from David, and they weren't the Messiah. They weren't declared to be the Messiah, and yet they're descended from David. There's something unique about Jesus, and the resurrection is the demonstration, the verification, the validation of it. See, the resurrection is a verification, and we'll get into this in future chapters, so I won't spend as much time on it, but the resurrection is a verification or validation that Jesus is the the faithful fulfillment of all of Israel's longing and hope. He is the better king. He's the better prophet. He's the better priest. He is the better law. He is all of these sorts of things that Israel should have been. So whenever it's talking about Jesus as being the Son of God, and that somehow that happens at the resurrection, it's not talking about Jesus ontologically. Jesus doesn't become the Son of God in an ontological sense. He doesn't 
become God at his resurrection. He's always God. But he's appointed, he's shown, he's demonstrated to be the Messiah at his resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's the new Israel, the new Adam, the better prophet, priest, and king. Let's move on to verses 5 through 6. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I love this. This is Paul's mission statement, if you will. Our mission statement here at, uh, at Parkway is that, uh, that we exist to glorify God by making disciples. Well, Paul exists to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. So let's focus on uh, the two parts of that statement. Obedience of faith and the sake of His name. For those of you who were here uh, two years ago as we walked through uh, the book of Mark, you might be familiar with this term that we used. It's this literary technique that we used a number of times, and it's inclusio. It's like the word inclusion, but without the N on uh, the end. And an inclusio is a literary technique where an author will bookend uh, some material by talking about the same thing twice. He talks about something here, and he talks about something here, and everything uh, in between is somehow related to that idea. So one of the uh, really striking examples in the book of Mark is that there is a place where Jesus heals a man of blindness, and then he heals another man of blindness. And if you pay attention, everything between those two healings deal with mankind's spiritual blindness. That's what inclusio is. It's these bookends, and everything in between is somehow related to it. What's interesting is the entire book of Romans is an inclusio. It begins with this reference to the obedience of faith. And if you were to flip all the way over to chapter 16 and you were to look at the second to last verse of Romans, you would see, again, this reference to the obedience of faith. So in other words, uh, in a sense, everything in Romans is about this idea of the obedience of faith. So it's fairly important that we understand what does it mean. Well, there's two grammatically possible ways to read uh, this phrase, obedience of faith. One way is to say that what he's talking, when he's talking about the obedience of faith, he's talking about the obedience that is faith. Faith itself is the obedience. Another way to read it is the obedience that's resulting from faith. So the obedience that faith is or the obedience that faith produces. So what does it mean, the obedience that is faith? What does that mean? Well, that means that faith is the proper obedience to the gospel. God calls for His people to believe and repent in light of the gospel. That's their act of submission. That's their act of obedience to the gospel is faith and repentance. Faith is the proper and obedient response to the reality of the reign of God in the gospel. And then what about this other way of looking at it, the obedience springing from faith? Again, both of these grammatically make sense uh, it's ambiguous in the Greek. What about the obedience springing from faith? That just simply means that faith results in obedience. Think about the book of James. There's no contradiction between Paul and James. Think about the book of James, which says faith without works is dead. The Bible is absolutely clear that we are saved by faith alone, but it's also clear that faith is never alone. Faith always overflows into a, a faithful response by God's people. So which is it? Which of those is intended? If you read most commentaries, most scholars actually believe that it's intentionally vague on uh, Paul's part because he wants us actually to see both. 
But there is a sense in which obedience is the faithful response. Our response, or faith is the uh, obedient response. That our response to the gospel should be faith, and then that faith should overflow into works of obedience. And so most commentaries would say that that is what Paul's intending, is for us to see both that faith is the obedient response to the gospel, and that faith is going to overflow. It's, gonna, uh, it's like a, a fountain that's going to overflow into obedience uh, in our life. And so Paul's desire is that this obedience of faith might extend unto all the nations. When Paul's writing this, the, the gospel is still somewhat centralized there in Asia, but, uh, but like uh, ripples on a pond, it's moving out slowly and slowly and slowly. It eventually ends uh, up here in McKinney, and then it's moving even beyond that. This is the reason that every year we send out a team uh, to Romania that both ministers to Romanian citizens and also Romani gypsies. This is the reason uh, that my semi-albino friend is over in Japan. This is the reason uh, that uh, we have a really good church planner friend that's in Northern Ireland who we've told stories about before. This is the reason that Parkway as a church supports ministries uh, in, uh, in Africa. This is the reason that we support ministries uh, here locally because the nations have come uh, to McKinney as well because there is this desire for the obedience of faith uh, to extend to all the nations. God is passionate for the nations. But I want you to notice something, and that is that the obedience of faith among all the nations is not the ultimate goal. It's what we might call the penultimate goal, the second to last thing, but it's not the ultimate goal. It's a means to an end. What is the end? What is the end according to this verse? The end is the sake of His name. See, the, goal to, the gospel is not ultimately about nations. The gospel is ultimately about His name. That's what the gospel is ultimately about. The gospel is about God and the nations fit in as more and more people see and savor the glory of the gospel and enjoy God accordingly. So speaking of nations and names, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my in-laws uh, took Casey and I uh, to Italy. Even as I say that, I know Tim's going to pull that audio and make it into some sort of bragging montage about how I went to Italy. Uh, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, and, uh, and so we went to uh, Italy, and we had this driver at one point, and his name was P.G., like the movie rating system. Actually, his, his name was like uh, Pierre Giuseppe, but that was too French. And, uh, and so we called him P.G., and he was driving us around, and, and one of the days that he drove us around, he drove us by uh, the Tower of Pisa uh, because we happened to be passing uh, within, I don't know, 10 miles of it or something, and I'd always wanted to see it ever since I saw Superman 3. And, uh, and so he took us to the Tower of Pisa. We do all the pictures, although we didn't do any of those pictures where we're trying to hold it up or anything like that. Uh, but we do our pictures there, uh, and then as we're leaving, we're talking to PG. Uh, and we're asking him questions about the history uh, of the place and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and my father-in-law said, man, it would be a really, really big deal uh, if the tower were to fall. And PG's response was, eh, not that big of a deal. <laughs> I don't know if he just hated pizza or if he was just super sarcastic or just Italians just are really nonchalant about their national treasures. But I think it would be a huge deal if the Tower of Pisa were to fall for that economy. And the point of this passage is that there is nothing bigger than the glory of God. There is no bigger deal than the sake of His name. There is no bigger deal than the glory of God as we see in His name. Throughout Scripture, we see this over and over and over again, that God's passion and pleasure is 
the goodness and glory of His name. That's the chief motivation underlying everything else. If you want to know why does God do something, this is the answer. No matter what you throw in the blank there, this is the answer. Why does God do this? Why does God rescue Israel? Why does God forgive sin? Why does He judge His enemy? Why does He do anything at all? The answer is for the sake of His name, His reputation, His glory. Let's look at just a handful of passages that teach this. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 48, 9-11, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. For Samuel chapter 12, For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make a people for Himself. Psalm 106, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider Your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of Your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet He saved them for His namesake, that He might make known His mighty power. Ezekiel 20, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Isaiah 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And this is not just something that is a theme of the Old Testament. We see this throughout the New Testament as well. Acts 15, 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. Jesus Himself in Matthew 19, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Romans 9, 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show My power in you and that My name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God uh, the Father. So the glory and renown of God is the chief end and passion and mission of Paul. And how does Paul pursue that goal? How does Paul pursue that mission, that passion by proclaiming and preaching and teaching the Word? See, in Paul's mind, God is glorified as the church considers his revelation. When Paul wants to do something for the obedience of faith among all the nations, what does he do? He writes a letter because he realizes that theology is what we need. He realizes that the Word of God is what we need. This is where the obedience of faith among the nations accomplishes the goal of glorifying God because the more that we learn of him, the more that we behold his mercy his grace, His goodness, His justice, His wrath, His kindness, His severity, the more that we're grateful for His love and mercy to us, and the more that we learn, the more that we love Him. And so as Paul is passionate that more and more and more people would learn and love God, and that God would be glorified and His name exalted as the nations come to know Him. One more verse to go. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we get to the audience. So what do we know of Rome back then? Well, at this point, Rome is the epicenter 
of the Roman Empire, uh, which at this particular period of time represented about 25% of the world's population. So one out of every four people uh, who were alive were uh, a part, were under Roman uh, rule. And at this point, uh, the empire is still kind of expanding. So in a, uh, about 100 years, they'll kind of reach their apex and begin to, uh, to fall uh, from that point on. But at this point, they're still expanding. They're kind of uh, on the upward curve uh, in their uh, in their power and uh, and majesty, uh, and meanwhile, uh, what we know of the church in Rome is that it's planted independent of the uh, the apostles, which is really fascinating. So you might have some you might have heard growing up in some uh, class or something you might have heard according to some traditions, uh, the apostle Peter or the apostle Paul uh, uh, planted the church in Rome. Paul is going to explicitly say that he has not even been there, uh, and there's no evidence that uh, Peter ever uh, went there that early. Uh, in its history, and so that's just uh, speculation or something like that. What actually probably happened was there were a number of, uh, of Jews uh, that were in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, Jews would travel from all over the empire, all over the, the, uh, the world, uh, to come back to Jerusalem for the feast at, uh, uh, for Pe- uh, Passover, uh, and they remained there for Pentecost. And they're, as they're there at Pentecost, a number of them are probably converted, and then they eventually go back to Rome, and they plant this church there in, uh, in Rome. And so, uh, the church there in Rome probably was originally very, very Jewish in its cultural context and feel. But something happens around, uh, I think it's 48 uh, AD, I forgot to put it in uh, my notes, but uh, around 48, 49 AD, uh, and that is the, the emperor at the time, whose name was Claudius, uh, he hears about this friction that's uh, happening there in uh, the city. And the friction involved Jews and this dispute over, according to, uh, to historical records, Krestos. Uh, we would spell it C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S, which is probably just a, they probably just misunderstood. The debate actually was probably over Christos, uh, was over Christ. So you probably had believing Jews and non-believing Jews that are having friction and tension Claudius uh, hears this. He knows this is not good for the city, for there to be all this uh, turmoil and strife and tension. So his solution is simply to kick out all the Jews. So anyone who is ethnically Jewish is expelled uh, from the city in 48, 49 uh, A.D., which means that the church at this point now uh, is maybe 15 years old or so, and, and the church in Rome is now entirely populated only by Gentile believers. And so after a period of time, the, uh, the Jewish Christians and other Jews are allowed back into the city, but Jewish Christians who come back into the churches all of a sudden find this church doesn't look like it used to. It's taken on a much more Gentile sort of feel, which is uh, why we're going to see so much throughout the book of Romans about Jew-Gentile relations, because there is this uh, point of friction within the church uh, as they have come back uh, and uh, after being expelled uh, from a, uh, a period of time. And so, a number of passages in uh, the text are going to be devoted to this uh, relationship between Jews and Gentiles, similar to what we saw, uh, honestly, as we looked at uh, the book of Ephesians last year. And so, Paul writes this to the church in Rome, and by extension to all churches, and says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we started Ephesians last year, we, we, we talked about Pauline epistles and how he changed uh, the greeting that was typical, which would just say greetings, and he changed that to uh, grace. Uh, and we saw how grace itself is another inclusio. He begins with grace. He ends every single letter with this reference to grace. In other words, the book itself is grace. 
God's word to his people is grace. What you need is grace. Even in the things that might offend or sting, it is all of grace. God's purpose for sexuality and marriage, our submission to authority, like in Romans 13, predestination and election, like in Romans 8 and 9, laying down our rights for the sake of others, as we see in Romans 14, all of these things, on and on we could go, all of them are God's grace, and so we should appreciate them, we should like them, we should enjoy them, we should treasure them, because they are God's good gift to His people. And the result of that grace should be peace, which is a major motif of Romans. In chapter 3, it says this of unrighteous man, that their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But once we've been united to Christ, we know the way of peace because Jesus himself is peace. And so in Romans 5.1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is death, the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. In Romans 14, the kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. In 1533, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The constant refrain of peace reminds us that this book and indeed the gospel is essentially the message of the kingdom and God subduing all obstacles to his reign and all obstacles to our joy. And one day we'll know the fullness of that. Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul's apostolic desire and thus we would say by necessary implication God's desire for us is that we might know the peace that he has accomplished for us in the gospel. So whatever it is as we embark on this next 18 months that you're anxious about, your job, the future, the past, taxes, your marriage, your children, whatever it is that you're anxious about, the gospel speaks to it because the gospel is a message of grace and the gospel is a message of peace and God is a God of peace and Jesus is the Prince of peace. And so what we need to learn is to submit our lives more and more and more to the reality of God's reign in the gospel. So we've reached now the end of this beginning section of Romans, and I want to pray for us as the men come forward, and then I want to talk uh, in uh, our time of introspection about how this message in particular leads us uh, to the reality of the Lord's Supper. So let's pray as the men come forward. Father, I thank you for uh, this letter. I thank you for all of its complexity and intricacies and beauty and all of the glory that's embedded in it that uh, we spent 45 minutes working through and we could have spent 45 hours more and still not exhausted all of the beauty therein. And so uh, I'm grateful for it and for the opportunity for us to walk through uh, this great book over the next year and a half or so. I pray that you would use it to make us look more like your son, that you would pour upon us grace and peace. In particular, I ask that you would give us a deeper trust in the authority of Scripture, a deeper appreciation for the centrality of the gospel, and a deeper passion for your glory. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.